Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. I know I say this all the time about every topic we have on uh, Higher Voltage, but this one I am very, very excited about because lots of reasons. One, I don't really know all that much about it, so I'm really excited to learn from the two guests we have today. But also, it's a very, very topical, relevant, and timely topic that people are talking about right now, and that is NIL, name, image, and likeness. We're going to talk about this from a couple of different perspectives. I'm so, so pleased to have Teresa Valerio Parrott back with us. Uh, You'll recall that she uh, joined us for the uh, leadership conversation we had a few months ago, President, college presidents, and navigating those tricky waters. She's back today to share her expertise and insights on NIL. Uh, We also have John McBride from Brigham Young University, and I'd like for both of them to introduce themselves briefly now. John, we'll start with you. Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Really excited to be here and and to speak with you and Teresa. This is a a super exciting topic, and and, uh, really, I made the move over uh, at BYU from central communications to athletic communications one year ago. And I think uh, it came at a really interesting time for me uh, when, when a lot of rumors were swirling about NIL and what would happen. And then finally, July 1st hit this last year and we got something concrete there. Um, but basically, my whole career has been in, in social and digital marketing and communications and specifically in influencer relations, in, in leveraging micro-influence, working with street teams, doing takeover series. So, so really, I've always been interested in this element of individuals speaking for a brand, uh, leveraging that individual influence to to be able to speak for a brand. And and there's always been this conversation surrounding humanizing brand communications, where my perspective is always, well, let's use a human um, to actually humanize it. Uh, Right now with NIL, man, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. And and I'm sure we'll get into that conversation. But but my role at BYU right now is Associate Athletic Director uh, over communications and media strategy. So so managing a team doing uh, more foundational communication necessities and, and media relations and and, and website management, but but also uh, working with our social team and and doing the team communication side uh, for all of our uh, individual intercollegiate sports. But now this whole new world opening up for my staff and I of being kind of these these social and branding consultants for student athletes, which has been a lot of fun, um, a lot of opportunities and challenges, and and yeah, excited to be where we are right now. Awesome! Thanks so much, John. Teresa. Give it a go. Hello. Happy New Year, Kevin. It's nice to see you again and nice to talk with you, John. Um, I am Tressa Valerio Parrott. I am principal of TBP Communications, and um, I work on communications and uh, leadership uh, issues, to be honest, only with institutions of higher education. So um, I was at the University of Colorado for a decade, and we had some issues come up on the policy side of intercollegiate athletics. Um, And to be honest, I feel that this has been a thread throughout my career, intercollegiate athletics, from a policy standpoint. If you aren't paying attention to that part of your institution, you should. And this is a passion project for me, um, athletics is. Uh, As many people know, I am probably the most uncoordinated person they will ever meet. So when I say 
I have a passion for intercollegiate athletics, I think that surprises them. But of course, I take it from a policy standpoint. And so that makes much more sense. And about two years ago, because everybody was so tired of hearing me talk about this, I had a number of people who said, why don't you write a dissertation? And I think it was a snark comment, but I took it seriously. And so here I am. Uh, I will have my dissertation defense this spring and next year we'll be defending the intersection of governance and intercollegiate athletics uh, for presidents and boards. So that's my interest in the topic. Well, first of all, congratulations on the dissertation. Um, Ooh, this is too awesome soon for congratulations, but I'll take the good, good vibes. <laughs> uh, deciding to do it to me is a victory in and of itself. So that's just where I stand. Uh, I am not working on dissertation. So I think it's pretty remarkable. Uh, all right. So thanks for those brief introductions. I have my beverages. I have my coffee and I have my water. I have my pen and my paper. I am ready to learn because this is going to be a great conversation. Um, I'm wondering if we could start uh, super briefly with just like a quick and dirty definition of NIL, and then if each of you can just kind of explain from where you sit some of the pros and cons that uh, exist because of it. Sure. And as we kind of mentioned, both of us will approach these from different angles. So Teresa can talk about the more policy side. I'll talk about the more uh, student-athlete side. So so NIL, uh, standing for Name, Image, and Likeness, uh, July 1st, the NCAA said Okay, uh, you can go for it. And you can monetize now your your name, image, and likeness, which which is pretty groundbreaking. Really looking at the history of the NCAA and how how much money there has been in intercollegiate sports historically, and how little of it uh, student athletes get ultimately outside of you know scholarships and books and laptops and things. So uh, monetizing this name, image, and likeness, uh, it's it's a game changer, um, and, and we see we can see that in uh, you know, traditional sponsorships like we've seen with professional athletes forever uh, from your local car dealership and, and a traditional billboard or, or TV commercial, but um, also monetizing social influence and social capital. So uh, we're seeing sponsorship uh, happening through social channels, uh, everything from a sponsored tweet to a tag in an Instagram story. Uh, and then there's in-person type elements where, where student athletes can be paid for an appearance or uh, an autograph even, which was something historically that couldn't be done. So really opening the door for these student athletes to make some money, to set them up financially for the long term. And, and we can talk about some, some ways we've tried to do that at BYU as we go throughout today uh, in, in some different ways. But um, really what we'll you mentioned pros and cons, Kevin, and and, and there are some for sure. Uh, and and it's been interesting to see the perceived pros and cons from the outside, um, and also the some of the pros and cons we're seeing internally. But but right from the very beginning, it was interesting that our our football coach was concerned with uh, you know in professional sports. If you look at professional football you've got each player signing a contract, right? So, so you've got your quarterback who's making a bunch of money and his offensive linemen aren't really making as much money, but, but they still have a contract that's, that's tied to their worth as a member of that team uh, with NIL. There, there's a concern early on that your quarterback's going to all of a sudden be making a six figure endorsement and your offensive line isn't going to get anything. <laughs> and, and what's that going to do for locker room issues? What's that going to do for morale? That's a real con, really, to look at the dynamics that can happen internally when you've got some players making a lot, some players making none. And when you look at team dynamics of an offensive line having to protect that quarterback, you know, there's there's issues there. But overall, I think 
the pros outweigh the cons. Um, I think another con is is just again from an internal perspective, but the amount of of support and bandwidth that it's taking from athletic departments to offer support and help and looking at compliance details to make sure this is happening the right way, there really is some bandwidth that this is taking. And, and it's kind of everyone's job in our department. This isn't just a communications thing for me and my team. There's uh, We actually created a new associate athletic director uh, role simply for student athlete experience, um, where we, we lump a lot of that NIL stuff under. But it's it's a new world. It's an exciting world, and I, again, I think the pros outweigh the cons. But um, it's taking some real time and effort to be able to do this right and to support the student athletes uh, for them to do it right. I think that's excellent insight. Thank you, John. Teresa, what's your view on uh, on the pros and cons? I think when I think about the pros and cons, the most obvious one that I see from a policy and from a legal standpoint, because there have been many uh, cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court that have kind of talked about this. And the original founding of the NCAA was really talking about making sure that we're preserving that amateur status of college athletes. So if you go all the way back to 1905 and 1906, that's where we were and we're, we're still there. And I would say that this better reflects where we already are and that we're past that ideal. So we continue to hold on to the romanticism of what athletics could be and what this amateurism could mean. We're not there and we haven't been there. And actually, we never were there. So to reflect where we are and what this can look like, I think that name image likeness makes a lot of sense. Um, I also think that there is this perception that this is different than the mission of higher education, right? And there's this intersection of where intercollegiate athletics shifts purpose and intent. And I think the counter to that would always be that the student-athlete focus hasn't always been a reality for a number of institutions. So as much as we talk about that purity of sport, I think we need to be thinking a little bit more strategically about where have student-athletes been experiencing athletics for some institutions, and what does that mean? How have institutions included them or not? And one of the pros and cons that I watch very carefully is there's been this concern about what this will mean for Title IX. Will this start to create some inequity? And what I would say is I think that we have underestimated the want of women's sport and athletics in this country. We see the options for women to really own a brand and for people to want to follow women's athletics, and we need to allow that to grow. To say that we're concerned about this means we need to be watching for it, but we shouldn't assume that it happens, and we shouldn't assume what viewership and support of women athletes might mean. And I think there is this interesting way that we should be kind of watching what has already happened. If we want to think about where women have already been monetizing sport in a way is look to cheerleading. I know that this is going to sound silly to many, but cheerleading is not a sport, according to the NCAA. It is a spirit activity. And so cheerleaders for years have been bucking this trend and have been able to get endorsements for, you know, a number of different things, whether it's social media posts to its um, products, to apparel, et cetera. And some of the largest influencers that we have had uh, traditionally on college campuses have been cheerleaders. So we have a way to be thinking about this. And there doesn't have to be a downside to thinking about this as only being an opportunity for male athletes. I think instead, it's making that option available to more and seeing where some of these initial contracts are getting signed and, and supported. 
I think we have some interesting examples that we can point to. So historically, if we look at cheerleaders, as I mentioned, I think we can now start to look at where gymnasts are starting to come into this as well. And then I think we have some softball players, etc. We have the ways in which we are layering in women's soccer and we're layering in other sports that we need to not just be looking at this as a limitation, but instead an opportunity for our women athletes as well. I can definitely speak to that for, for my experience as well here at BYU. Our, our student athletes who are the most primed to monetize social channels um, was actually our women's basketball team. Our, our star player on the women's basketball team has 500,000 followers on our YouTube channel. This is pre-NIL, right? And uh, other players on the team have kind of hopped into that, started their own YouTube accounts, big on TikTok, you know, at practice, they're doing a dance and a coordinated three-point shot type thing. Um, they were primed for this. Um, that that star player is now, since NIL, has entered into a number of NIL deals, has also launched her own clothing line. Um, and it's That's been really amazing. interesting to follow. It, it's been absolutely amazing and and a really good use case for us here. And, and I think something that can be applied across collegiate athletics, you know, is really interesting. July 1st, we, we had a couple of football players. We saw this throughout the country that just put out a tweet. Hey, you know, uh, wing stop, come at me or something, you know, like, like, like I'm here, pay me money. And, and then once they kind of figured out, oh, I've got to put in as much work as Shaley Gonzalez does on our women's basketball team to create an actual vlog, to spend time editing video and making things look this good and curated. Like that's been a really interesting learning curve to watch here is that it's not enough just to have a social account and you're going to get paid, but there really is a reward for taking the time and effort to build an intentional social community uh, that that's going to have a lot of trust there that, that will translate into buying power eventually. But to your point, Teresa, women's athletics, I, I think in, in large part is primed to take advantage of this in, in a number of ways. And we're seeing it here at BYU for sure. And I would hope that that would have spillover to how we're thinking about women's sports and the promotion of them moving forward, right? If this is what we're starting to sign, and this is where I'm seeing, you know, there was just an article about a female lacrosse player who hosted a camp and, you know, what she was able to do. And I think that there are the ways for us to think about where have institutions historically made money or left money on the table, and how can our student athletes be thinking about what those opportunities are now? Let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. Higher Voltage is brought to you by Squiz. University websites are filled with great information, but oftentimes a simple internal site search does not give users the information they're looking for. Funnelback, the site search product by Squiz, changes the way people engage with content by revolutionizing search. It delivers relevant and comprehensive search results for users, which is key for business objectives. Visit squiz.net, that's S-Q-U-I-Z.net, to see how Funnelback by Squiz can create a smarter site search option for your institution's website today. This is completely fascinating to me. In all of your conversation, throughout all of your discussion, some questions have surfaced, and I'm not going to ask them all at once. I do want to move to the next question because the, the points that you both are raising lead directly into it, and that is, as these students build their brand, these student athletes build their brand or even enter the uh, educational uh, experience with a brand already, it seems as though there is this merging of two brands, right? The brand of the institution and the brand of the student athlete. And I'm curious what your takes are on what the impact of that merger can be. And I'm particularly interested in how the brand of the student stays healthy and what the ramifications are of something bad happening 
to the student or is it like do people get treated equally right this person that has 500,000 followers there's a, a balance of power shift right i'm curious about all of those things do those questions make sense yeah i, I i've definitely got some thoughts and i think this is going to lead to a policy question to teresa and what she's seeing here but this this idea of merging brand and personal social profiles has been really interesting here. And it's been interesting to see how different states have actually put legislation of how, uh, where the rubber meets the road, how those brands can legally connect, right? So here in Utah, no NIL legislation on the books. We're one of the states with, without that, which really for us has been kind of nice to, to have an open playground to, to be able to work with on this. But still, um, there is this friction and this this idea, and and there is you know the, the NCAA hasn't given a ton of guidance here, but one one of the guidelines um, that they've shared relates to this, right? The the branding and and use of facilities and logos and things like that. There, there, there's been mul- multiple touch points, and I might need Teresa's help on on how all of that falls down. But initially, our own guidelines to our student athletes was you cannot use the BYU logo in a a sponsored tweet or an NIL visual capital. And then that can't be on campus in, in facilities either. That needs to be at a park off campus. You need to be wearing generic clothing, not non-BYU related. But then credit to our corporate sponsorship team and our uh, student athlete development associate athletic director, where they came together and said, well, let's let's incentivize our student athletes to be able to work with our existing corporate sponsors. And we're actually going to let them use the logo if they do an NIL deal with an existing corporate sponsor. And that was actually some real friction early on. College athletics, for, for years, we've been beholden on these corporate sponsors who are, who are giving a significant amount of money. What happens all of a sudden when a corporate sponsor to university says, uh, instead of us giving you $200,000 for this uh, sponsorship, we're actually just going to work straight with the athlete, right? That, that takes away some and real- potentially for a lot less money. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they, they can right. they can leverage that for less money as well. So 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 we've tried to be intentional where, okay, we're actually going to give you the rights to use the logo if you work with an existing corporate sponsor. And then it's kind of a, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. Um, but, but that is uh, something that different schools are approaching very differently. How you can, in a visual sense, uh, leverage your own athletic brand at your own institution in the actual visual capital that you're using. Um, so that's something that's been different uh, at different universities. But I think to your broader question, Kevin, there is some cachet for these ultra high level athletes, uh, college football or basketball players who are at the top blue blood programs. Uh, Of course, there's an inferred value and inherent value that you don't need to see Bryce Young from Alabama with an Alabama jersey on. You know that that's a Heisman winner anyway. So so I, I think that gets to kind of the the overall question there but but when you look at the nitty-gritty and how this comes about in the actual posts that are on social media um, that's been really interesting to navigate on our end and I think it's important for us just to be honest with each other that institutions have always taken advantage of right and it's supported in other ways through, through scholarships etc but taken advantage of the social capital and the political capital that student athletes bring with them and now what we're seeing is is that students for the first time have the ability to decouple themselves from the institution or to stay connected So this really means to me that the relationships that we build with our student athletes are that much more important because they can choose to play with us 
or not. And the way in which we've used their reputation and their capital, we now have to acknowledge in different ways. And it means that the retention of these student athletes is that much more important because they have an audience that isn't reliant upon us and they can take their 5 million viewers and they can go somewhere else and they can continue to have that education and the financing that they've been able to cultivate. So I think it really has institutions think should have institutions thinking more carefully, what am I doing to retain my student athletes? And going back to what John said before, I think this is a moment for us to think about how we're providing resources to our student athletes and how we're helping them to navigate this. Because if we help them thread that needle, we have a better chance of keeping them and keeping them uh, associated with the institution's accounts rather than choosing that decoupled approach. Okay, so I feel you on all of this. I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a hot second. Do it. There are so many devil's advocates (laughs) in this room. Bring it. I can't help but think about the ways in which a brand becomes more vulnerable by having these kinds of engagements, right? And so the point that you raise is a good one, Teresa, about like the retention piece of a student athlete. One could argue that on a lot of college campuses, the strongest retention strategies are the ones that student athletes get, right? The scholarships, the facilities, the all the other things that, you know, come with um, your participation in these high-level sports. If something doesn't go right in a student athlete's experience and they decide to transfer or use their platform to say disparaging things about the brand, what then? Sure, that has always existed. And I think you can go go back to March Madness and how the women talked about their experience. Go back to how the media reports how our student athletes are doing in our communities, right? Think about the ways that our student athletes have always been brand ambassadors that are held to a higher standard than our general students. They've always had that platform to talk about how they feel they're being treated or they're not, talk about resources, talk about experiences. I hope they've had freedom to talk about how their coaches have treated them, et cetera. So I can name some lightning rod players as well as coaches, as well as programs. And we have things that come to mind because we associate something with them. That has always existed. The difference is we now are calling it for what it is that money has been made off of this and by whom. So that's always existed. And I think if institutions are now just paying attention to what can this mean for our brands because they're worried about losing the brand, right? They have not been paying attention to how they could and should have been working with and treating and leveraging those um, relationships with their student athletes. 100%. And to play devil's advocate to your devil's advocate, Kevin. um, Oh my God, double devil's advocate. (laughs) I, I think NIL might actually um, incentivize student athletes to uh, back to that last conversation to couple themselves with the brand better because it's going to be better off for them monetarily. Um, and that's actually part of our conversation. Um, you know, the, the beginning of every athletic season, my team over athletic communications were in charge of doing some media training where historically that had been kind of, you know, here's how to do an interview with ESPN at halftime. And, and here's some do's and don'ts about social media and, and kind of super simple stuff. Uh, this year that evolved incredibly into a lot more intentional and strategic kind of ways to brand yourself. And that ESPN interview, that radio interview that we're going to call you about, all of that goes into playing into your brand. And the way that you talk about yourself, the way you talk about your teammates, your coach, your institution, 
that all becomes a part of that brand that you're going to be able to monetize. So you do want to be intentional. And of course you want to be authentic and we're not telling anyone you can't share frustration or, or problems or issues, but in the way that you choose to do that, it's going to come back to what your brand is and how other brands may or may not want to partner with you. Totally. So I'm going to touch on something that John said, and then I'm going to go super geeky with us for a second, if that's okay. So, so here's that part. And John, I think part of those resources that I'm hoping are occurring is that we have the opportunity now. We've talked about how once student athletes choose to go professional, they kind of lose sense of their money and their finances and people take advantage of them, et cetera. This is an opportunity for us to think about what resources can we provide now to ground these student athletes now so that if and when they get to that different point, they have some knowledge behind them. And for any student who is looking at any NIL opportunities, I say this all the time. My husband knows I shake my fists and I say, please tell me somebody is talking to these student athletes about taxes on all of this as well, right? Like, so it's great that you're getting that new truck and you're going to be the sponsor of the local Ford dealership. Please tell me somebody is talking to you about what the tax implications of that is. So I think there are some opportunities for us to be giving some of these. We've always talked about offering some additional courses and some resources to student athletes as it pertains to their experiences as student athletes. And we need to be thinking about how do we layer in what that moment needs now. And I think that includes what John's talking about and I'm talking about is there is this how do you think about your own brand and your own preservation of your career trajectory? And also, how do you think about financially how that's going to work and what those considerations are? So there's a whole bunch of different pieces that I think we have an opportunity for. But here's my geekiness. I'm going to completely change gears for a second. I think that there is this opportunity for us to talk about where does this come from? And, you know, we had in the 1980s where institutions sued the NCAA because they felt as if in regions versus NCAA, they felt as if the NCAA was getting a disproportionate amount of money tied to intercollegiate athletics. So if that happened in the 80s and that set some of the case standard for how we're now talking about what does that mean for student athletes? So there was this moment where we were only talking about Madden football, right? We only were talking about video games. We only were talking about if you can sell your, your old jerseys and what does that mean? And I think that really shifted into this bigger conversation through some cases went to the Supreme Court <laughs> about what does this mean for brand, right? That true name image likeness, because NIL really is tied to those roots with video games and some other options to really, what does this mean about me representing myself holistically? So I think I just wanted to add those little nuggets in there that we talk about this as if it is just about students and athletic departments. This is about institutions. This is about conferences. This is about the NCAA. And there is case law around this that has built and brought us to this moment. So just wanted that little, that nerdy plug. Uh, geeks are always welcome here and nerdy plugs. Okay. So those were some really great points. I want to shift gears just to touch, you know, again, uh, I did uh, a bunch of reading, uh, preparing for this conversation and Oftentimes the the names and brands of the schools I ran into were felt like the usual suspects, the Ohio States, the Arkansas, Nebraska, large athletic programs, primarily um, talking about the football opportunities with NIL. But these are the ones that typically have the infrastructure to stand up programming around the NIL laws. 
incorporating other programs into the experience. So taking law students to help out with contracts and taking marketing students and to help out with, you know, uh, brand marketing, et cetera. But there are a bunch of smaller schools in the country who might not have this kind of infrastructure. And so I'm wondering if the NIL policies exacerbate the kind of have and have nots uh, that we currently see in higher ed and or how do smaller schools compete in this space? Yeah, I think initially I'm seeing what you're seeing, Kevin. It seems to be the the programs that do have the the resources and bandwidth to be able to tackle this are are being able to provide their student athletes with some more guidance and resources and support, and and they're they're benefiting off of this. Like Teresa has has touched on, um, we are still in such the early stages of this, and 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 it really is the wild west. And and a big part for me is in this overall is that we need to figure out what the ROI is and what the market really values first. Um, And that's going to take a little bit of time for the market to sort out what this is all worth. But in that interim and and how this moves forward, I I think my prediction is that we're going to see more student athletes figure this out together. And and, and what I would see at smaller schools and what what we've kind of seen here uh, and what was interesting feedback early on from from our women's basketball team, actually, the ones who are the most primed, they said, hey, can we actually put together something that we're calling now, we're calling the BYU Influencer Hub. So we're, we're bringing together those high level student athletes on the women's basketball team, a couple football guys, a couple basketball guys, um, actually a couple of golf players who are really invested in, in building their brand. We're, we're trying to bring, bring together people who really, really care about this and want to invest the time and effort. And really they want to talk to each other and they want to network and figure out how to do this together. I, I think that's probably the best way forward for a lot of smaller schools is, yeah, maybe you don't have uh, someone full-time there or a class to enroll in. But what we've seen throughout social media marketing is it's the digital natives. It's the people who are on the ground floor who are going to figure out the trends. They're going to figure out the ways to work with the algorithm. They're going to figure out the best uh, kind of things that the older people aren't going to figure out anyway. So what I would see at smaller schools is is more athletes working together, kind of figuring this out together. And, and I think uh, that can have some success for sure. I totally appreciate your points there. I'm curious about like, I mean, the smaller schools benefit so much greater from a brand coming in who has 500,000 followers or an audience of, you know, hundreds of thousands. It just changes the playing field for those schools in such a way, well, in more the same ways that it already has been, you know, an unlevel playing field. And I just, I'm, I'm trying to keep in mind what transpires in the recruitment process, knowing that you can't use NIL as an inducement and knowing that there are states with laws and those without, and that there's a bunch of different kind of like markets for this. The states that aren't really set up well for this, the schools inside those states, whether they're small or big, are going to have a hard time competing, right? And it just feels like for some of these student athletes, understanding that there are 480, 500,000 athletes that you know fall under this purview, now 480, possibly 500,000 brands, it just feels like the smaller schools just don't get a fair shake. But I just wanted to lay that out on the table. Teresa, please, please go. 
But I think they've always struggled in that same kind of a way, right? A D3 program getting its partnerships, its corporate partnerships, they're struggling in ways that big programs aren't. And they really have to tie it to their community and they have to tie it to their authenticity as programs. And for them, it is a little bit more about the purity of the sport. So if that's the case, what are those opportunities that better align with how you're offering athletics and what your students are looking to get from it? So I think that's key. And that goes back to the example that I gave about lacrosse camps, right? If you think about what can happen with camps and lessons and how that can be monetized, ESPN this summer had a really great interactive that said, here are the different options that student athletes have. And it was social media, camps and lessons, starting a business, and then additional endorsements. And there is this real way for student athletes to think through holistically how have institutions made money off of student athletes And then how can I be a part of that? So for that D3 student, it might feel more genuine to them to go home over the summer to their hometown where they're known and to say, I'm going to offer a a lacrosse camp. Here's what I'm going to do over the summer. So I think it's to get to why are student athletes participating for the sport, for the glory? What is it that they're in for? And I think that gets back to the root of how you recruit. When you recruit a student, you have to get into the what do they want to get out of their experience. And I think this becomes another layer in that discussion with the student athlete and their family. And and something we haven't really addressed yet is that for uh, out of those 480,000 students, a lot of them don't really care about this, right? And and you've got to recognize that. We were really interested here in doing that initial training and saying, hey, like, like here's some things to think about if you want more, if you want to be a part of this influencer hub, if you want a one-on-one meeting with a member of our staff to talk about your brand, let us know. For a lot of them who are already taking a full load of courses or are thinking about law school or medical school, the amount of work that it takes to perform at a high level as an intercollegiate athlete is a lot. Like some of them don't feel like they have the bandwidth to put in the time and effort for an ROI for them personally to come from this as well. So, so I think for a lot of them in the recruitment stage, NIL maybe won't be a factor for a lot of the uh, high level athletes. NIL will definitely be a factor. That is an excellent point. I think it's very easy to think that every single one of these student athletes is going to want to go after these huge contracts. And let's be clear, it's not always about money, right? You get like apparel and other kinds of benefits that aren't always cash cash money, as my dad used to say. So there are lots of different ways that this can unfold or be executed. And I I really appreciate you raising that point, John, that not every single athlete is going to be uh, after these opportunities. Even that apparel, make sure... For that apparel that you're still thinking about taxes, right? There's still, there is an implication. It's not just about the cash money. It's about the vehicles and the apparel and those really cool sneakers you now have. All of that has a monetary value. So I think there is some education still to be had. Um, And I think to John's point, I think we're going to have to have at least a year or two behind us to get through a cycle of everything from endorsements in businesses, because there's a student Mm -hmm. athlete I saw who has a Airbnb. Did you see this at Oregon? Oh, yes. Division Street. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So he has a a themed house if you're going to rent it to go to an Oregon game. Right. You have that kind of that business startup entrepreneurial spirit through those that um, do camps and lessons, et cetera. So there's this big swath of opportunities that we're talking about. And we're going to have to go through a couple of cycles to figure out 
what this is and what it isn't. And to be honest, what's allowed and what isn't, because I think we're seeing some of those questions being raised now based on what those initial contracts and agreements look like. I am quite intrigued by the economy that will rise out of some of these things. One of the things, I mean, you you brought it up just now, Teresa, about these programs, right? The this idea that you know we've hired a person that's going to be like the the brand manager, like the brand consultant for these athletes, and we've got these programs stood up. And I think it's really interesting because historically and traditionally, higher ed is seen as very antiquated, very slow to adjust and evolve. But here we are with these really forward thinking programs that are specifically related to the NIL. But we don't have that same kind of urgency and creativity when it comes to some of the other programs that are needed on campuses. And I'm curious if higher ed can use this time and this issue as a model for how to provide the things students say they need, even if it doesn't bring, you know, riches and awareness to the campus or to the campus brand. Is there something that can be learned that colleges and universities can learn about the ways that they set up these programs that they can apply to other areas of the campus? Absolutely. And I think if they're not paying attention to that, what are we all doing? So I think the one thing that I would say is this felt very fast, yet we've had years. These cases have been going through the courts for years. This conversation has been happening for years. So I can appreciate that these programs were launched, but for a number of institutions, they've been thinking about this for quite a while. And I think we have a similar runway for some of our, our um, academic programs that are seeing a potential loss or a real loss of revenue as it happens. And I think there is this way to say, how do we start to think about this? Here's the rub, Kevin. How do we start to think about this from a business sense, right? How do we start to think about this in a way that we're taking away the emotion and the history and all of those sorts of pieces? So we talked in the early part about the purity of sport, and we need to be thinking about how do we retain our institutions and keep as much of the purity of academicness and experience, but we have to be cognizant of and thinking about all of this in a business sense. And I think that's where we're getting the pushback and we're getting the number of different people at various levels and places who don't want to have that conversation. Yeah, I think uh, th- this is such a good question, Kevin. And I think something that we all smiled about and, and have worked in higher ed long enough to know just how slowly wheels turn. And, and I think you're exactly right that like this showed us how quickly things can work. And I think we saw this through the pandemic too, right? We had to move to remote instruction so quickly. And I think it's another use case in the past few years that when institutions want to move fast, they can move fast, but man. And and I think uh, it's moving fast because you see that the money is moving away from you. And what I would say is, and we should be thinking about tuition in some ways. (laughs) Right, because that is money too. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Awesome. So I stumbled upon a site. It was referenced in a recent Washington Post article. Uh, The National College Players Association has developed like a ratings system uh, that gives states a score of zero to 100 based on the amount of freedom the laws have for student athletes in that state. And so student athletes can go onto the site and look at the states that they're looking at their schools and check out whether or not those NIL laws will allow them to get the kinds of benefits that they want. I am curious from your perspective, knowing that not all of the students are into are going to go after this. I'm wondering if there's some sort of like distortion around 
what higher ed is for. I mean, I get it. Like people play athletics or get into athletics for lots of different reasons, for purity of the sport, for glory, for the win, also for a career. And so it just feels kind of interesting to me to have a site dedicated to ranking state laws about the benefits of NIL and having people choose based on that. It's not my business. It's, I mean, I didn't play athletics in college or like form when I played club, but it feels like it changes the conversation around a couple of things around higher ed. Am I off base? I, I think it's another thing that could distract uh, recruits or anyone surrounding NIL. Um, I, I think kind of what we talked about at the beginning of, of, of pros and cons, like, like it can be a distraction, but it can also be a mobilizing, empowering thing for a student athlete, especially for, for someone who comes out of poverty and, and has an opportunity to really set themselves up financially for a long time without having to brave those extremely low odds of making it professionally and getting a professional contract. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at that, those percentages, right, of how many high school athletes uh, become college athletes, how many college athletes become pro athletes, man, uh, college athletics is a, a mobilizing and, and a huge opportunity for so many student athletes to, to set themselves up for the rest of their lives. I think this is a new way to do that. And, and so I, I think um, certainly focusing NIL on NIL in the right way can be powerful, but yeah, it can be a distraction and it can be a motivation, a motivation to get into this that isn't 100% maybe the best thing. Uh, I can certainly see in the future a potential recruit only interested in how much money they can make on an NIL deal and choosing a school for that purpose and getting in a bad position. I'm sure those use cases will happen. But again, that's that's another one of those things in this next year or two, we're going to have to see how the market sorts it out. I think I just want to go back to something that I think is so critically important. We'll have outliers, but I think student athletes already kind of take those risks, right? Um, that they're not going to get hurt, that they are going to be supported, that they are going to be set up for that professional career if that's their trajectory. This allows all student athletes to be looking at this a little bit more holistically about what can this mean for them if they choose to participate. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about why. Why are we having this conversation, right? And at the early parts of the pandemic, there was a New York Times article and it said that the football alone pre-pandemic contracts were worth a combined $1.4 billion, right? Right? And that didn't include the conference-specific network revenues. And that's multi-year, don't get me wrong. As we're talking about this, let's talk about the money that's being made. And then I think the other conversation that we should be talking about longer term is very few athletic departments make money in a year. So if some of their money that they are making, for those few that are making it, is tied to the name image likeness of their students that they have been able to retain, what is going to happen to athletic departments writ large now that they've lost some of their leverage and their ability to make some of these deals and to have some of these partnerships because these are moving student side? So if we had X number of um, institutions small number that we're making money, I think that number is going to go down. And as we look at how much institutions overall have been losing every year, that dollar amount is going to go up potentially. So I think there is this, what will this mean for athletics longer term? 
And here's part of why they held on so tight for so long, whether that 1.4 billion, which does not go to the institutions directly, right? That's um, negotiated through the NCAA. What is this going to mean for the NCAA? What is this going to mean for the institutions? And then let's follow how this shakes out for the student athletes as well. It's a business. It, it most certainly is. So we're at the top of 2022. Hopefully there aren't any, based on the last couple of years, we should be on track to have some sort of alien invasion, whatever. If that doesn't happen, what are some of the things that you're going to keep watch out for in, in terms of NIL this year? Um, what are you waiting to see happen? What do you expect to see happen? Um, what are you nervous to see happen? I'm just curious what the landscape looks like looking forward. Internally, I, I, I think I've, I've hinted toward this, but, but really seeing how many student athletes are willing to enter the space in a really serious manner is something I'm interested in because that's also going to determine how much bandwidth and resources that we allocate for this uh, in our department, right? If, if we have these 50 student athletes who, who are the cream of the crop, we're going to go all in on this. And the other 400 are saying, uh, it's not really worth my time. I'm just going to focus on school and sports. Well, that's going to be different than if, if those other 400 athletes are, are saying, well, you know, maybe if I, I, if I put a little bit more effort in, um, I get a little bit more of a reward than, than, you know, if we're going to have to provide resources and education that way, um, that that's something I'm curious on. And, and then the ROI on the other side for the businesses is what I'm really curious to see as well. Uh, we had some um, really unique NIL deals here at BYU where we offered um, team NIL deals, right? Or, or a business, external business came in and offered a deal. Uh, the first one was for all of our walk-on football players, which got some huge national media. The, the ROI on that, we ran some numbers internally, just the day one social analytic equivalencies to, to what you would pay for paid social on that was 10 times the amount of money that it was paying, even paying, you know, uh, $6,000 each for an NIL deal for 32 walk-ons and then 3000 for the rest of the football team. The amount of value in advertising and marketing dollars that came back was astronomical. We won't see that with every single NIL deal, but seeing it for that one was, was instructive. But I, I think that just seeing how the market responds and, and how, you know, the, the two sides of that coin, how the market responds and, and how much willingness our own student athletes have to enter into the game. Uh, those are, I think, the two big things I'm looking for. Trust, what are you looking for? I'm looking to see what happens to internal policies. What does this mean? And, and I'll give you a couple of examples. I used to be a booster for my alma mater's football team. There were big events and everybody went and and we it was very clear what we were allowed to do and what we weren't allowed to do as boosters. And this was more like a luncheon ladies group. And I think there is this question to be had around what are we instructing our donors and how does that play or not play into name image likeness? And I think there are these bigger questions for us to be asking around what institutional policies should be, whether it's to support student athletes or it's to provide some guardrails on all of this effort as well. And I think how well institutions do or do not do that is going to lead up to state legislation coming down the pike. And if that's the case, then we're going to start ramping all of this back up. So I think we went national to then come local. And I think we're going to start that roll back up. Um, and I'm going to be watching this from a policy standpoint. And to be honest, uh, that policy is going to be built by those who do this well and ethically and those who don't. And I think we need to start to have a better sense of what that looks like and how that shakes out. Teresa Valerio Parrott, John McBride. 
this has been a joy. It's been a learning experience for me as well. I really appreciate you sharing, you both sharing uh, your expertise and perspectives on this. As you both said, this is a brand, brand, brand new development in the higher ed space. And so what I'd love to do is sometime next year, have kind of like a part two of this to see where we've come from and see what kind of developments have taken place, because I think it'll continue to evolve over the next couple of years. Any final, final thoughts you'd like to share about anything? There's just one thing that, sure. that Teresa brought up a couple of times and I keep wanting to insert, but um, since you asked, I'll bring it up. The tax stuff, right? And, and the opportunity that this really is to educate student athletes, I think is super important. Um, and, and it's prompted us to look at things in a different way. You know, I mentioned we, we added this new position over student athlete experience. That was intentional that we didn't add a new associate athletic director over NIL, because NIL, we feel like folds into this broader experiential thing, right? And so, so it went from conversations early last summer where I'm looking at it from, okay, let, like let's get a personal branding course. Let's, let's get um, kind of student agents and stuff and working on providing content. It went from a conversation from that to, well, you know, how do we set them up for success in life and, and how do we provide an experience here that's holistic and looking at more than just, you know, getting paid for an Instagram post and moving on. So the conversations went to an internship program. It went to um, life skills like like taxes and budgeting and, and, and you know, even things, you know, we, we have student athletes who come here and have never checked into a hotel by themselves before, right? Which, which is understandable, but we don't think of when we give them that room key on the first road trip. You know, there, there's just a lot of life skills here. And I think NIL is a really, really great opening and doorway for us to educate student athletes and empower them for a better life overall. And so, so I've been glad that this isn't just about athletes making money, right? That this is about something a lot bigger than that. And, and I think um, student athletes are going to benefit a ton from it. I would just say, I think this has been an opportunity for cleaning up some policies that were just outdated, that were always pointed to for why student athletes couldn't do things. So I go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, and there was a student athlete named Jeremy Bloom who just got caught up in all of the, the red tape associated with name image likeness. And I think to myself now, if Jeremy Bloom was a football player and an Olympic skier right now, you know, it would be a whole different world for him. So I just want to give um, kudos and thanks to the many student athletes and administrators who put themselves out there, whether it was, you know, Alston or et cetera, um, who chose to say, this is where I think the sport should go um, in the way that they've had conviction over years. It didn't benefit them, but it's going to benefit student athletes today. And I think that's really important and just want to say thank you to them for bringing this to everybody's attention. Awesome. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I hope you both had a great holiday season. I cannot wait to see what happens in higher ed in 2022, especially when it comes to name image likeness. Uh, and we'll see what happens next. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, we'll see you in Thank a year you, from Kevin. now, Kevin. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2.